Wait, Mary, I've lost track of days here. We're in like, what, the sixth week of January here, are we? Oh, it feels like it, doesn't it, Dan? And only last week, I still said it was fine to say Happy New Year. It feels like the last week has been about three weeks long, don't you think? Hasn't it? It's been a while. It's been a while. It has. So any big news from you this week? Well, we've had some COVID issues in our household. I know a lot of people have had to put up with that over the last couple of years. Oh, man. Symptoms weren't too bad, fortunately, but our little boy Leo has been positive for the last week or so. So symptoms not too bad, fortunately, but a lot of childcare juggling, mm. which I know a lot of people have, have done over the last two years. And um, it's not easy, but um, so if anyone joined, anyone joined calls with Dan last week, they may have had an <laughs> extra visitor in those in those calls. Yeah, I think fingers crossed we're nearly there, and, and he's he's um he, he's got through it, so um, all good. Excellent. Well, at least it's at least it's on the up, and I think this is probably the longest week of January. So by next week, hopefully, all the listeners are, are happy that we're nearly at the end of potentially the worst month of the year. I don't know if that's a contentious thing to say or not. I, I don't think that's controversial, is it? Actually, <laughs> I, I think I don't know, but I mean, you might offend anyone who's got a birthday in January or something. But I mean, that's certainly in the last it, couple of years, I find it hard to make a case for January not being the worst month of the year. Yeah. But Dan, I know that you love talking about New Year's resolutions and we didn't manage to do that last week. So let's cover that now. Any New Year's resolutions? You wrote a really good um, LinkedIn post about New Year's resolutions. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll link to the post I wrote in the document. I love New Year's. I don't love the phrase New Year's resolutions, by the way. I I find it a little bit loaded at this Mm -hmm. point, I think. But um, one of my other controversial views, actually, is that if you really push me, I think I might choose New Year's over Christmas if I had to choose between one of the two holidays. I I know it's a bit controversial, isn't it? I mean, I guess, um, I don't know. I love the idea of like, I don't know, a clean sheet of paper or something. I just feel like that's what you get in New Year's. So I I don't know, I spent Mm. a lot of while thinking about New Year's goals and I haven't got a good word for it, but you know, things you want to do in the new year, basically, that I don't want to call resolutions. I've been a while thinking about that. And I wanted to write something that was challenging to the kind of pushing back on the kind of common refrain at this time of year, which is kind of like, oh, let's ditch all the New Year's resolutions and go to the pub kind of type of view that you tend to hear quite often. Um, So what I was basically saying, just cut to the chase, was that um, you should feel fine about failing your New Year's resolutions because you should set them in a way that if you achieve half of them, that's still great. You should should Mm -hmm. set things that even if you only achieve half of them, it's still really good. So I suppose I was saying you should reframe New Year's resolutions to be a selection of things that even if you just do a few of them, it will still make a difference to your life that you'll actually think is good. It doesn't have to be big. Some, some of them are just really small. I've had ones over the years like completely refresh uh, my sock drawer and recommend that, <laughs> recommend that one. That actually is a surprisingly underrated uh, thing to do, I would say. Well, it's, it's an easy one as well to, to tick off. But yeah, you know, the, the, the standard thing is to often put this long list of wishful things that you'd love to do, you know, mm. lose weight, read more, drink more water, meditate, yoga, and blah, 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 blah. And by the end of January, January, you know, you're in the pub and it's all yeah. out the window. But making real change, I think you can pick maybe one thing really is the way to do it and, and work at it a bit more. Yeah, because I suppose my approach, and I, I agree on the naming, by the way, we we had a chat on the weekend about calling it New Year's objectives instead of resolutions, because resolutions just have that connotation now that, yeah, you're right, yeah, people totally, joke totally, about it in the pub, totally. but are you really trying to do it? I'm not, I'm not really sure anymore. And I was going for the approach of just set yourself one and then you might actually manage it. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, the other option is to say, actually, I've got a collection of things. The issue with selecting one, of course, is that you can only cover one aspect of your life and you might have a few things that you're trying to work on, but hey-ho. Yeah. So I'm still working on mine. I'm not quite at the point of sharing well, I've got my one, which is to take more photos and maybe to take better photos because I'm just a bit rubbish. I'm, I get lost in the moment and that's great. And then I look back mm. on the year and struggle to remember everything I've done and, and have no evidence of it. So 
I'm trying to document just a little bit better what I've been what I've been up to. And the side note to that, or the longer version, is do stuff that's worth taking photos of, uh, which then encourages yeah. you to do fun things during the year. So great, um, I love that. That's yeah. great. Still forming, and I might try and do some for other aspects of life. But watch this space. We've got till the end of January, right, to decide what they are. I think so. Yeah, we can come back on this next week as well. Awesome. Okay. Good. On with the episode. Absolutely. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So one thing we've been talking and thinking quite a lot about is the idea of remote meetings and particularly remote trustee meetings. Delighted to say that joining us today is someone who I know has also thought a lot about that. So really interested to hear some of his thoughts. So welcome, Robert Thomas a professional trustee from Law Debenture. Robert, welcome. Thank you very much, Dan. Good to be here with you today. So yes, as you say, I'm with Law Deb. I work with seven trustee boards at the moment. Two of those are doing pure DC work, two of them pure DB, and the rest of them a bit of a mix. Before joining Law Deb, I was in the corporate world. On the finance side, I worked with a couple of large US multinationals, Xerox and Pfizer. Before that, I was trained as a chartered accountant with Arthur Anderson. Okay, so huge amounts of experience you can bring to today's discussion, not least, of course, most recently at Lord Adventure. Robert, before we kick off with those questions, we're really keen to know what's one thing that the listeners should know about you that won't appear on your CV. Before my main career, I was actually a research scientist and I spent my time investigating things called cyanobacteria or blue-green algae. And I used to have a reason to go and visit nice places like Kenya and fish these things out of lakes and reservoirs. So that was a little bit different to what I'm now doing. Who'd have thought that could lead on to chairing and sitting on trustee boards? And was it a particular use of or behaviour of blue-green algae that you were looking into? They were quite interesting things. They go up and down in the water column during the day. So they float up in the day and they've become very topical because they actually trap a lot of carbon. And then they would sink down at night as it got cooler and darker. So there's quite a lot of interest in their ability to, as I say, trap carbon and help us with some of the environmental problems today. So there is a link. Super interesting. I was about to ask whether you've retained a sort of interest in algae and things. I suppose you sort of answered it just then. But you're one of those people who walk past a pond and you like pointing out this particular species of the algae or something like that. Time passes, but I retain a passing interest and certainly like the outside world and uh, what's going on there good place to start perhaps Robert you wrote a really good LinkedIn post recently I love a good LinkedIn post as people probably know and you were asking for thoughts on how to make remote meetings more debate rich basically I think so I was wondering did you get any good responses to that and what are your own reflections on that challenge it was an interesting one and it got a few responses which I was pleased to see The heart of my matter wasn't so much that you don't get dialogue, but that it's that the dialogue's not as high quality as you typically get face to face. So what I was observing happen, and I've been trying to find ways to deal with this, but the chair will perhaps ask for questions and somebody asks a question, puts it very eloquently, succinctly, then whoever that's been addressed to gives an answer. In the real world, what tends to happen is people 
might interrupt partway through in a constructive manner. The original person might ask a supplementary question. You get much more of a dialogue around it. Whereas what I'm tending to observe and was picking up on in my little LinkedIn post was you get this rather formulaic, sequential, one person asks a question, somebody answers it. Um, they then don't really expand on it. And the next person asks a question, which might be on a slightly different thought track. And it's, it's a much more forced approach of discussion as opposed to a natural forming together of a conversation. The feedback I got, there were some nice ideas in there. One of the ones I liked was smaller groups that really resonated. And certainly one of the things I've seen in as we've moved to the virtual world is that small working parties can be a really effective way of getting stuff done instead of the quarterly board meeting cycle and then you come back a quarter later and see what somebody's done and often the answer's not enough. Having small working groups focus on particular areas can really work well. So an example on the investment side I had recently was on a hybrid scheme where we set up a short-term working party to look at the DC investments and particularly the self-select range to make sure we'd got the appropriate range. It was up to date. It's the sort of thing that needs doing, but you don't necessarily need everybody plowing through it. So some people who had a real thirst for that sort of work and interest in the area did a great piece of work. And I'm sure they had lively discussions in those meetings in a way that you just don't in a full trustee board. I suppose it's interesting, isn't it, how that phenomenon of a smaller working group being able to have that higher degree of debate, potentially, you can see how that happens in the real world as well. Picture sitting in person around a huge boardroom, it's more difficult to speak up than it is in a small group. Do you think it's more pronounced in a virtual setting? And if so, why? I think if you're restricted to virtual only, in a sense, the benefits come through all the more because it is much easier to get a good dialogue going with a smaller group. We've all seen maybe up to half a dozen people can get on the screen. You see everybody. You can pick up on people's facial expression. As soon as you're up to 10 or more, it gets difficult, I would say. I was going to ask you, actually, for what you think are the key breakpoints there. So your theory is what half a dozen and less is small, 10 or more is basically big, and in between those two is kind of middle. I guess 10 or more is medium size. And you can have a very effective trustee meeting still with 10, a dozen people participating and even up to 15 with advisors. But that's a slightly different sort of thing and it necessarily becomes more formulaic at that scale than if you've got smaller numbers. Well, this is it, isn't it? Because it has forced us a little bit to ask the question about what is the nature of the meeting. I suppose the point is you don't necessarily need high quality debates at every single meeting. In fact, some meetings that might be not what you want if it's simply a question of approving things or receiving updates on things. I guess that's part of it as well, isn't it? Very much so. And I think one of the things a good chair really has to think about is how should this meeting actually be structured? What are the aspects that we really should be spending time on? If you look at what a trustee board or a trustee committee should be doing, it's quite a senior governance role. And I certainly like to see time focused on discussion time focused on that which should be discussed and where there will be a diversity of opinion and to get that flushed out and time spent on more routine analysis of reports really moving to more of an exception basis and let's see what we need to pick up on from that rather than to discuss the manifestly obvious or the expected. 
I've certainly observed in virtual meetings, and maybe it's because what you're doing is really speaking to a screen and not a real person, but it almost becomes a bit of a machine. The meeting becomes a machine. And so in your example, someone asks a question and then there's a response and you sort of tick the box to say that's a response received and then you move to the next thing and it becomes perhaps slightly disjointed. I think that's right, Mary. I certainly think virtual meetings are extraordinarily efficient probably been able to get through more work in a more efficient manner with the majority of people spending the majority of their time in a virtual format. But I completely agree with you that it tends to become formulaic and that you really have to actively work hard at the interactions more than you do in the more natural setting of people being together in a room. And the bigger it gets, the more that's the case online particularly. They're probably trends that are there anyway, but do you think they get accentuated when we're online somehow? Maybe what's happening? I think so. And I suppose the other observation I was reflecting on then is, so I've heard a few people say that one of the benefits of using something like Teams is the hand up function, particularly if you're in a bigger group and you can't see all six faces in one screen and read body language and facial expressions. The hand up function can be really helpful, but I do wonder how that interacts with behavioural biases that already exist and groupthink and that sort of thing, because to press that button and raise your hand could be saying, I've got a really important fundamental question to ask. And I could picture people who are less likely to speak up in a real world scenario also being less likely to raise their hand, which feels even more formal than just asking a question that can feel quite casual. Exactly. You lose the throwaway comment or the throwaway question, just that little sentence that's got a nugget there that somebody then latches onto and says, yes, you're absolutely right. I was thinking something along the same lines. It, it's harder to do. And so I think the hand up can be very useful. I do use it quite a bit, but I tend to prefer for a meeting people chipping in as they would if they were in the room and not feeling they have to put their hand up. I think allowing time to people as well. It takes people time to think, do I want to ask a question? Do I want to raise something? Where's the right button either to put my hand up or to turn the mute off? One of the techniques I've found quite useful is being more tolerant of silence than one might normally be. So give people time. If it's an area that I want to get discussion, I actively want to get discussion going, I think it's important then I am not afraid to let that slightly uncomfortable silence emerge. And nearly always somebody chips in. They're the people of the personality type that they won't let silence stick. But as you say, that sometimes brings out a thought that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. It's interesting. As someone who spends quite a lot of time presenting, the hands up function, I always find can sometimes, although I like it, because sometimes feel a little bit aggressive. Like if you're presenting and suddenly you've got five hands up in front of you, it can feel quite oppressive. It's like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of pent up questions or something. I was chairing an internal meeting last week and just that happened to me. Suddenly there were five hands there. And what I ended up doing was essentially asking each person to make their point and then trying to get the conversation going rather than to take each one and flow it through. The snag of that is you're sort of losing the richness if you just let them make their point and then the next person is maybe the early ones get forgotten or dropped. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you're sort of alluding to that thing as well, that sometimes someone puts their hand up and it's like, is that a question or were you just making a point there? It's a fine line, isn't it, sometimes, especially with colleagues and with internal meetings that maybe they just want to make their thing. So you're sort of calling them out on that a little bit. The other thing, I guess, especially from an advisor perspective, it's been said many times, but it's just harder to read the room in a virtual setting 
you just don't know where the consensus is. In a person-to-person setting, you get a sense of that very quickly, whether your recommendation is going to sail through no problem or whether there's some real challenge that's building up there to it. So many times in a remote setting, it's just so hard and you just don't know. You have no idea which one it is. One thing I draw out there is sharing slides, which I do everything I can to avoid sharing slides because I always rather see the faces. And then we need the discipline of having got, if there are materials, let's get the materials out in advance. And I think everybody's got two screens or a screen and a phone or some way of doing both by now. And I think as the presenter, I'm sure you have as well seen countless examples where someone shares their slides and then says, not only can I not see the faces, but I can't see if questions are coming through or hands are raised either. So I think it makes it easier for all of that as well. That's certainly what I go for. And I agree the reading the room is tricky. And when I'm chairing, that's always something one's trying to do as chair to get the feel what's going on here. Who's got something they want to say? There's one, he's actually another independent trustee I work with, and he has an interesting process that whenever there's a point where he thinks input is due, he literally by name goes around and asks everybody for their input. That can be good. I use it selectively. The individual uses it repeatedly. It's just a different style, different ways of doing it. That's good in that it gives everybody a platform and people realize there's an expectation they'll contribute. Of course, the first person to go can then become more influential, disproportionately influential. So the choice of who goes first is actually quite an important one too. Yeah, I agree if you do it that way. So Robert, you just referred to being in a chair role, obviously not just in internal meetings, but in your chair of trustee positions as well. And it's something we've thought quite a lot and spoken quite a lot on this podcast about governance and decision making and the role of the chair within that sphere. So I wondered if you would be able to reflect on the importance, but also some challenges that you've experienced in that chair position. As I reflect back over 20 odd years of chairing trustee boards, it's been a whole range of things. Generally, one of the hallmarks, I'd say, is I like to take decisions by consensus and making sure that a line's drawn between seeking consensus and avoiding groupthink is clearly a key one. But I could count on one hand the number of times when I've actually put a trustee decision to a vote, because usually if you get the right information in front of people and have the right quality of discussion, you reach a position where even if people have, if you like, dissenting views, they are ready to support the view and the approach preferred by the majority. So that's sort of how to get to decisions, I'd say, is one of those challenges. We've had challenges ranging from, we might talk about this a bit later on, I think, but at one stage, it felt as though at every valuation, the news was worse. So there was that challenge out there of just how are we ever going to solve this problem that we've got with this pension scheme? You're getting into the relationship with the sponsor and where responsibility lies in Turkey. We all know that ultimately it's up to the trustee board to govern, but you have the sponsor there as very much an interested party, I think with an important role to play. And one of the things I say is whilst on occasion there might be differences of opinion or different views as to what the priorities are or how to deal with them, the vast majority of the time, actually, most sponsors and most trustee boards should be well aligned in what they're trying to do. And I suppose so if it looks as though that isn't the attitude, then maybe there's an information problem, not that actually the interests aren't aligned. 
I think that's right, an information problem or a failure to have explored sufficiently what the manifestations of a particular matter are. I inherited chairing a board about three or four years ago. And when I came in, it was just as evaluation was getting going. And I was told that the previous valuation had been extremely fraught and that there was fairly bad blood between the trustees and the sponsor. That pension scheme now, we have an excellent collaborative relationship between the trustees and the sponsors. It's actually a multi-employer scheme. There are three different sponsors involved. And just through making some changes in the way that we communicate, we set expectations and really work together, it has completely turned around the attitude and approach. And I suppose the role of the chair specifically there is you're effectively owning the way that that relationship can work, aren't you? Because clearly you are a trustee, so you are on the trustee side, if you like. But then there's a very important role in terms of, as long as it's possible, making sure the collaborative relationship's there. But again, without the other trustees thinking that you're too company friendly, particularly if you come in at a time where there might be some bad blood between the two sides. Correct. And working with advisors is an important part of that, to make sure that advisors are guiding and steering and thinking and not backing trustees into a corner or leading too strongly as occasionally can happen. But that's, again, I think generally for the chair of trustees to make sure that that relationship works or the chair of the investment committee or whatever it is. That's a really interesting little case study that you alluded to there. Any slightly more specific tips around the communications and the expectations that you talked about there that helped facilitate that change? One of the things I think was actually in talking about it, nobody was really very clear what we were trying to do. And that might sound a bit crazy, but it's surprising how often you don't know what you're trying to do. Or maybe the trustees think they know, and maybe the sponsor or sponsors think they know. But if there hasn't been a good discussion and landing on what the objective is and confidence all around that it's a realistic objective, then you don't really know what you're trying to do. And if you don't know what you're trying to do, you can't measure what you're trying to do. So in that case, we worked up a medium term plan to get to a fully funded position. We took into account what seemed appropriate from a risk point of view for us to expect a return from investments in the scheme. And we took into account, I suppose, essentially the then current level of contributions by the sponsors And so we got that in place, kind of worked that in place parallel with dealing with the then current valuation. So that meant we came out of that process both with an agreed valuation and with a journey plan, an agreed journey plan, and with investment de-risking triggers built into that journey plan. So when it came to the valuation, which we completed last year, three years on, We already had the framework. We knew what we had expected to do. We were able to measure against what we had expected to do. Actually, we had achieved that. We happily got to a position where deficit recovery contributions were no longer required because we had had a three-year recovery plan in the previous valuation. So yeah, okay, we had, if you like, a fair wind in that case, which meant that the plan came good. But if it's a realistic plan, then you hope it will come good. If you've managed risk appropriately, then it will come good. So I think that little one just gives an example that that sort of gathering minds around what we were trying to do when we would reach full funding on technical provisions and 
now we're on the journey towards self-sufficiency again with an agreed schedule we've actually because of strong investment returns we've hit not one but two de-risking triggers on that scheme so again those are in place and you don't have to worry too much you just go and validate is that the right thing to do if it is get on and do it and again there are no surprises there's no big debate about is it right to be doing that am i going to have to make more contributions if you start de-risking investments that bit's done when you've got the framework there yeah, so really, really important stuff there around getting the objectives right, getting on the same page, getting a framework and a plan that then moves you away from having to have one-off conversations each session or each meeting around things, which might then be more fraught if it's all aligned with the plan. And I suppose it sounds so obvious sort of saying it in some ways, but it doesn't happen naturally all that often, does it? Unless some thought goes into it and is thinking. I think you have to make an effort to do it. You referred to each meeting or each session. But if you can get something like that to work, running through two or three valuations, then you're really onto something that's standing you in good stead. That's not to say it's frozen forever. You need to tweak and amend. But at least if the backbone of it's there, you're set up for success. I was going to ask just quickly, any tips for advisors then who are working with trustee boards, maybe even asset managers who find themselves presenting to trustee boards, any tips for how they can better position themselves? I suppose the obvious one might be be aware of that plan and work with it. But any other points from experience that you would advise us? That's one. I think another is clarity and measurability. How do we know collectively whether we're doing what we set out to do? I like the idea of things from an investment point of view. What's our agreed required return to reach whatever the target is? It might be full funding on technical provisions or full funding on a self-sufficiency basis, whatever that metric is. What is that required return and how's that moving? As we go through, should we be changing our investment strategy to make sure that we're likely to continue to hit that required return? So measurability, from my point of view, is a key one. I think not getting too lost in the weeds. As I've looked at some of the second round of CMA investment advisor objectives, I think some of those have got horribly clunky and cumbersome. And if you're not careful, they mask what you're really trying to get to. It's an interesting dilemma, if you like, there, because the really big takeaway I just took from the case study that you gave us was the importance of not being too abstract. So actually having some specifics helps to get people to the table, helps with engagement, not just with the sponsor, but with other fellow trustees, because as soon as you start talking specifics, people do have views and they are able to debate those views in a way that perhaps they're not if you've got a very abstract plan. But of course, then the advice of the advisor, which I completely agree, is to not get too lost in that detail. So it's finding that mid-level, we have enough specific that we can discuss it, but we don't get lost in the weeds. I think the trustees having something that they can objectively get hold of helps. Robert, are you telling me that investment consultants sometimes get lost in the weeds or actuaries sometimes get lost in the detail? Surely not. (laughs) (laughs) I could give you another little anecdote there, Dan. Lord Ed was appointed as first-time independent professional trustee on a board. Very nice group of people. No real investment specialists or pension specialists on the board. And it's a situation where there isn't a pension secretariat at all. It's an outsourced pension secretarial arrangement because there isn't a single obvious sponsor. Formally, there is one, but there isn't an organisation that has a pensions department there. I came onto this board and the first couple of meetings I sat there And I thought, I can hear the actuary telling this board this, and I can hear the investment consultant telling the board that. And I can't see how these two are joining up. And I'm struggling to understand what the investment consultant 
is saying. So what do the rest of these trustees think? And you, so you don't like to start stirring stuff up too quickly, but after a couple of meetings like that, I spoke to the chair and said, I think there's something we need to do here. This isn't working. The upshot of that one actually was we tendered both the actuarial and the investment advisor appointments and both incumbents were invited to reapply either for both or just for one. We ended up actually appointing a third firm to do both appointments. Completely different meetings now. Everybody understands what we're trying to do. We've got full alignment between actuary and investment consultants. We've stripped out the complex language. It's a very well-funded scheme and actually has a rock-solid covenant. So it's one where we've been able to really simplify things. And I think one of the things you can do is get very lost. And ultimately, the trustees are responsible for that, not the advisors. But the trustees need to make sure they work with advisors to get what they need from advisors. It's an interesting point, actually, because I've noticed that sometimes on very well-funded schemes that are in very good positions, you can actually get into weirder weeds and details because there just is no bigger driving picture to it. It can be a bit of a sink for getting lost in the weeds. But I'm just making my little list there of checklist points for advisors. I think you've said basically, make sure you're aligned with the other advisors so it's a consistent message. Don't get lost in the detail, strip out the complexity, and maybe don't be afraid to just put forward simple stuff. Absolutely, yeah. If boards want more complexity, there's one board I used to work with where the investment strategy involved 30, 40 managers. It was almost like a hedge fund. The degree of complexity, that's a completely different way of looking at how the majority of DBC schemes, I suppose, structure things. At least start simple. Start with the explanation simple and then develop for those that need it. Should we talk a bit about behaviour and decision making and some of the biases that you've seen, Robert, both in terms of investment decisions, but also, I guess, just things like we've referred to groupthink. There's a couple of previous podcast episodes on that, if people are less familiar with that term. But some of the other behavioural biases that you've seen in your role. Behavioural biases are a bit of a tricky one. I suppose a good chair backed up by good advisors should reduce the risk that you get this groupthink. It's critical both to give trustees the room to talk and to almost require it of them to make sure that somebody isn't sitting there just keeping something bottled up and not saying it. In the example I just talked about, where we had the investment advisor and the actuary not seeming to join things up, in that case, just by lobbing in some questions, talking in the background to the chair, It became very clear to me that my suspicion that people weren't understanding things and were probably being quite advisor-led there. And if you like, just giving the nod on investment stuff to what the investment advisor was saying, rather than picking to get underneath it and understand it themselves. I think that was what was going on. It's tough, isn't it? Because we talked a lot about behavioural biases and investment, and you can spend hours unpacking them and talking about them and how terrible they all are sort of thing. And a lot of those conversations come back to saying, ah, but that's the chair's job. The chair will save us sort of thing. The chair will know how to get through all these biases. And it's like, oh, wow, chairs must be these really amazing special people if they can somehow screen out all these biases, figure out how to get everyone on the same page. And I think there's a lot riding on the chair there, really, isn't it? If we're looking to the chair as a solution to all these biases, that's a hell of a role, isn't it? The chair certainly has a special responsibility. And I think the chair's doing, in a pension situation, You could have a chair who knew very little about pensions. You could chair the meeting, in a sense, 
being a good chair from a human behavior point of view, then there are the technical aspects of chairing. And I think most boards and most sponsors come to the conclusion that having a chair who has good technical knowledge as well as good interpersonal attributes is important. One of the things I do, whether I'm there as a co-trustee or I'm chairing the meeting, is I would look to hold back my opinion until a long way through the discussion. The worst thing, I think, is if you have somebody who is the perceived expert who comes in and says, well, what I think we need to do is this. What do you think? Well, what are the rest of the people going to say? Whereas if you've got well teed up papers, and again, this is where as advisors, you can help us to make sure we've got well teed up papers. You may well have a lead recommendation. It's often helpful if you've got a couple of alternatives there so that one can balance that off. And then if I'm chairing, I would throw it open perhaps to somebody who I think might have a more controversial or different point of view first. Usually in my mind before the meeting, I'll have a preferred but not inevitable outcome in mind. Yes. And you can't help yourself, can you? Because you read the papers, you read the advice and you form your own view and that's natural. Indeed. You should probably expect to go to a meeting with an outcome that would be what you would vote for. It's just that you don't force it through. Exactly. Certainly as chair, I'd rather listen to everybody else and sum up, not necessarily even stating my own opinion. If it's gone the way I was expecting, it can be as simple as, yes, I think we're reaching the right decision where it looks as though we'll do X. You alluded to a point there that I want to just pick up on, which was how to deploy your own areas of expertise or even when and if to do it at all. We had a great conversation. We did an episode with Sally Bridgeland, who you might know, a chair, also a trustee, and she had this idea of being a deliberate amateur, which was deliberately taking that perspective of saying, look, walk me through that from the start, even if maybe she did really know exactly what was going on in the background. There was that need to be seen to draw it all back to the starting point and walk through it. I mean, how would you reflect on that? I'd agree. I think that technique Sally refers to is really useful. Often I find myself asking the advisor the basic question, Dan, just before you really get into this, can you just take us right back to the beginning on this one? What we're trying to do is generate this return or de-risk in this way. Strip it right back to the basics of what we're trying to do before getting into the technical detail of how to. Another thing you just tripped off in my mind is I think the situations vary very widely. At one extreme, I sit on the board of the LNG Master Trust leading master trust in the DC world. There we've got really strong secretariat and we've got the power of LNG, that organization behind what we're doing. So what comes to the trustee board is always well-structured, has been well thought through. There's been a lot of consultation, a lot of thought gone into it. There are people there who are focusing What's the strategic direction? Where are we now? Where are we going? Where should we be in a year, two years, five years? What sort of growth do we expect? What do we need to do? What are the market trends? Massive amount of thoughts. Contrast with a three billion own trust scheme, mix of DB and DC. Lord Deb was appointed as first professional trustee four years ago, me to take over as chair. Last year, they decided to outsource their whole pensions department as part of a global restructuring project, took out the pensions manager, the pensions director. They actually had in-house admin previously. That was all outsourced. 
So it's really very much left now where it's the chair of trustees who's really thinking through all of those aspects of what's the strategy, what are we trying to do, how do we need to prioritise things? Because yeah, however good an outsourced secretariat is, they don't have the same ownership. It's a fact as an in-house pensions manager, pensions director would. So that means that trustee role is very, very different. What's required of me in that context is very different from what LNG would look to me for on the master. It's really interesting that you've referred to the role of the secretariat a few times now, and it seems to me that you view that role as quite an important support to your role as chair. Is that fair? A good secretary makes a huge difference to a chair. Some scheme secretaries are highly strategic. Some are very procedural, and both can work really well depending on the circumstances. But in all cases, having an effective scheme secretary is key. Should we maybe return to the broader role of a trustee and maybe very brief comments on the evolving role of the trustee and how it's changed over the time that you've been in trustee positions? So not specifically the chair, but just as a general responsibilities of a trustee, how those have changed and perhaps maybe look into the future, what challenges you see in the next 12 months or so? We all know the amount of regulation has mushroomed and mushroomed for good reason. So the expectations have gone up with that. Who would have thought now that trustees of the larger schemes, at least, are having to assess the capability of their advisors to give them advice on climate metrics and reporting? It's a world away from where we were 20 years ago, looking at that level of complexity and detail. You asked where things were going, and I think there's been a gradual increase in professionalization of trusteeship, whether that is through appointment of independent trustees as a co-trustee or in another trend that we've seen, and I know LCP is seeing this as well, is interest in the corporate sole trustee model where the whole thing gets given over to professionals. There's no one model that's right. It's a matter of working out what fits in the circumstances. But I do think that that trend of, in the broader sense, professionalisation is only going to continue. In the DB world, I guess one of the big trends I've seen over that 20 plus years is the move from surpluses to deficits to stability, and then in some cases back to surpluses. And when there were growing deficits, it was almost a survival, everything getting worse. And in the last few years, it's been really heartening that we've been much more able to get into what are the long-term solutions? What are we going to do about this? One scheme I work with, we've just done a full buy-in and there was surplus there. And One of the things the trustee was able to secure was full inflation protection for members. There were guaranteed 5% increases and for a relatively inexpensive amount, we were able to get full inflation protection. And I think as we look forwards, inflation, I think, is going to be a theme that we've got coming out in the next few years. Obviously, there's a market expectation of more inflation certainly a non-trivial risk that we could get back into very high inflation for a period. And I think there are a number of areas where trustees need to be thinking about that, both from a member point of view and things like whether the hedging is properly taking into account inflation as it now looks. On the investment side then, internationalization of investment is another thing that I think we've seen. If you go back 20 years, it was 
mainly a UK market. Now there's very little in that. And then finally, DC, the combination of the master trust and the increased regulation. So that focus on consolidation in the DC world, I think that is another one that clearly the regulators got in mind to keep pressing and we're going to see that continue. So three powerful trends you've just picked out there. And of course, the overriding comments about how the role of the trustee has evolved over your trustee career. Robert, as we start to wrap up, I wondered if there was one thing that you wanted listeners to take away from the discussion. I appreciate we've looked at a whole big range of areas today. I think the one thing I'd draw out is always keep the member in focus. The only reason we're running these pension schemes is to provide income in retirement for members. And whether we're talking DB or DC, actually, let's just make sure we keep focused on what members need. Well said, really important. And Robert, most underappreciated thing about investing? Dan, I don't know if this would chime with you, but I think there are only perfect answers with the benefit of hindsight. Sometimes you look back and think, ah, yeah, we just got that spot on. Well, actually, if you're really honest with yourself, that's through good luck rather than necessarily good judgment. Now, if you get the framework right, then you maximize your chance of hitting it. And we talked about frameworks earlier, and I think frameworks are extremely important. But you never really know today. You know when you look back. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The role of luck, couldn't say it better. Important to keep a bit of humility, I think, on that front, isn't it? Quite right. Absolutely. Robert, final question. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? My son actually introduced me to a series of podcasts recently called The Rest is History. I don't know if you've come across those. Tom Holland, the historian, runs those. And some of those are absolutely fascinating. I was listening to one on climate and weather and the influence that they've had on world events and politics. And there's a whole range of these things, but worth just having a look at. The rest is history. Some really interesting topics there that they've debated. Yeah, sounds great. We'll check that out and have a listen and we'll stick it on the show notes so that listeners can see that as well. Well, Robert, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure, Robert. Thanks for joining us. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.